As we turn our attention to our scripture for this day, we need to remember that Jesus and the eleven, I say eleven because Judas Iscariot has departed from them in order to betray Jesus, a deed that he is engaged in even now as he assembles members of the temple guard to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus and the others walk through the streets of Jerusalem, he continues to teach them and prepare them for the hatred of the world that is coming. Within just a short while now, that hatred will be on full display as Jesus' enemies take hold of him and try him and crucify him. But then in the weeks and months to come, that same hatred will be directed at the disciples as they carry the gospel of Christ into the world. And so as this news begins to take hold in the minds of the disciples, the mood is growing more and more somber. Jesus has repeatedly told them that he's going away, that they cannot go where he's going now, but they will see him again. This he promises. All this has taken place as we come to our text for today, which is in John chapter 16, the second half of verse 4 and reading through the end of the chapter to verse 33. So I invite you to once again turn in your scriptures and follow along with me. Jesus is speaking and he says, I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will... Ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father Himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And then the disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Oh, you believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, and yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Whenever I read Jesus' words at the beginning of this text, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I always wonder if some of the disciples were thinking, You did not tell us these things in the beginning because never would have we followed you if you had. And yet that, of course, is not true because the key part of that sentence is because I was with you. Wherever Jesus was, that's where the disciples and so many others wanted to be because no one ever knew exactly what was going to happen when you were in Jesus' presence. The words that came from his mouth were more than meme-worthy pearls of wisdom. They were the very words of life. The miracles that he performed were more than slick parlor tricks. They were transformative acts of recreation. The peace that he dispensed was more than a pat on the head with the words, there, there. It was an internal cloak of reassurance that wrapped its strong arms around you and convinced you that the only God of the universe was holding you firmly in his hands. So Jesus' rationale for not teaching them from the beginning that trouble was on the horizon for the disciples was because trouble was not on the horizon for the disciples then. They had a lightning rod by the name of Jesus who would for the duration of his earthly life be the one to absorb all the strikes that were coming their way. But now that was about to change. 
Now Jesus was about to leave, and their hearts were filling with sorrow as their new reality was dawning on them. Now they would face the world's storms without his personal protective presence, and they were beginning to doubt their own ability to do that well. But then Jesus says to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now we need to think through what is entailed by that phrase, I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if Jesus does not go away, that has dire consequences for us. Bear in mind that Jesus is not simply indicating by this that he's about to die. He's indicating that his death is the crowning touch of a life that has been flawlessly lived. His death will be the defining moment of that flawless life, provided that he does not falter and fail in the closing moments. If Jesus goes away the way he means that phrase, it will mean that he has been successful in fully atoning for our sins and that God the Father will be 100% satisfied with the Son's offering, which will result in Christ's resurrection on the third day and his ascension to the right hand of the Father 40 days after that. Christ's going away will be advantageous to the disciples because it will mean that their salvation has been eternally secured. It will mean that death has been conquered. They have no longer a fear of it. It will mean that the Holy Spirit will come and reside in them, applying the merits of Christ's atoning work to their lives, empowering them to follow their Lord and Master, even as the Spirit continues to sanctify them for God's holy purposes. Now, none of that will occur if Jesus does not go away by means of Calvary's hill. But if he does, then as wonderful as they believe their communion with him has been up until now, it is about to grow exponentially as this other divine presence comes to them. And then Jesus reveals part of the Spirit's mission in the world. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now we need to realize that the Holy Spirit is always the first cause behind anyone who comes to recognize their sin and their guilt before God. I would dare say that the majority of people consider themselves to be good, and they probably consider the majority of others to be good. And they come to this conclusion because they compare themselves to the really bad actors in this world. It is difficult to read the headlines these days, is it not? You read of gunmen killing other people indiscriminately. You read of parents abusing and murdering their own children. 
You read of crime syndicates engaged in drug and human trafficking. You read of nation states engaged in genocide. You read the numbers of abortions that have happened in our own nation. And as the numbers continue to pile up, you shake your head in disbelief. And as those kinds of behaviors are paraded before the average person, day after day, they quietly say to themselves, I'm a pretty good person. That's not me. But you see, there's only one person who can disabuse us of that false notion, and that's the Holy Spirit. When Jesus declares that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, He means that the Holy Spirit will expose our sin to us. And not just our sins, but rather our sin nature. The Holy Spirit will open eyes that are blind so that we will come to the realization that we have a sin nature that is diametrically opposed to the holiness of God. And it is this sin nature that lies at the root of our refusal to embrace God's Messiah. And it actually led to our culpability in the death of Christ. The Holy Spirit will enable sinners to see that it was their sin nature that led Christ to submit himself to the cross for their sakes. And in this way, the Holy Spirit leads some sinners to a point of genuine repentance. We saw this on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached before the vast crowd that materialized when the Holy Spirit blew into Jerusalem like a mighty rushing wind. And at the conclusion of his sermon, the crowd was so convicted of their sin that they cried out, Brethren, what shall we do? They quickly reached that point of spiritual desperation, not because Peter was so erudite, but because the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see themselves the way God sees them. The first step in conversion is recognizing that you have a sin nature and are eternally lost and that you need a Savior. But it is also at that moment that you need the Holy Spirit even more, which is why the Spirit will convict the world also of righteousness. You see, that's the other part of the world's problem. Even if they become convinced that they are sinners because they have a sin nature, they do not have any idea on what it will take to set things to right. The world doesn't have a clue as to what the solution to the spiritual problem is. And we see this in the wide variety of religions which all seek to provide an answer to setting things to right. But the only solution they offer is for people to try harder. Do this, do that, believe this, try that. What Jesus is saying is that part of the Holy Spirit's mission is to convict the world that Jesus is the answer to their spiritual problem. The Spirit does this by pointing them to Christ, whose atoning death and resurrection and ascension establishes the necessary righteousness for sinners to stand in the very presence of God. Jesus' death was the payment made for our sins. He was our substitute. Our sin was laid on Him. And then God the Father punished Him in our place. And Christ's sacrifice was so perfect that He was raised on the third day for our justification, Paul says, 
and his righteousness was imputed to everyone who trusts in him alone for their salvation. And he then ascended into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God the Father. And there he intercedes on our behalf before the Father. And it is from there that he now reigns over the world until every enemy has been subjected to him. This work of Christ is the righteousness that will alone settle the spiritual problem that every man, woman, and child has before God. The Holy Spirit convicted the hearts of Peter's audience, enabled them to see that they had put the wrong man to death, even as they put the right man to death. In other words, they crucified a completely innocent man. They crucified the anointed one of God when they were the guilty ones deserving of that death. But in so doing, they crucified the right man because the one they crucified was sent for this very purpose, to pay a debt he did not owe for those who had a debt they could not pay. He was their unblemished sacrificial lamb. And so the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin because they do not believe Christ, but the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because Christ's atoning work is the only means that God provides to approach heaven's gate. And finally, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In the events that are soon to play out, the deceiver is about to be exposed for the liar that he is. Satan has, from the very beginning, been whispering in the ears of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, causing them to question the veracity of God's Word. He has convinced them that they should follow any path but the straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. And this deception has created an inability on humanity's part to judge rightly. You may remember back in chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Well, in the work that Christ is about to do, all the lies of the evil one are about to be exposed. And for a brief moment, Satan is going to think that he has bested God. But the resurrection of the Lord of life will dispel that sense of conquest. And then the keys of death and Hades will be ripped from Satan's grasp forever. And when Jesus will be given the name that is above every name, and that name is Lord, it will become clear that the eternal fate of the ruler of this world has been settled. And all those who follow him, who willfully reject the Lord of Lords, they will be judged as well. Well, Jesus then says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Looking at my watch, I kind of feel the same way. I still have many things to say to you, but you may not be able to bear them now. Jesus' point was that they had much yet to learn. They had been privileged to observe him over the past three years, engaged in a ministry unlike any that ever was. They had witnessed miracles of the most amazing sort. They had heard authoritative teaching that made their hearts sing. Some of them had been privileged 
to witness Jesus in His glory as He was transfigured before them on the mountain. And yet there was still more. The problem was that they weren't going to be able to comprehend what was yet in store. They weren't going to be able to grasp what was yet to come. It would not make sense to them if Jesus told them everything right now. It would become clearer over the course of time. The solution to this was the Helper, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit who was waiting in the wings. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Here is one of the prime reasons that we may rest assured that the Scriptures are reliable, for their author is described by the very Son of God as the Spirit of truth. When the Apostle Peter was writing to the saints in his second epistle, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now this also is part of the Spirit's mission, to inspire those whom God has called to proclaim His Holy Word. Peter asserts it here. Paul asserts it in his letters to the Galatians and to the Corinthians. John attests to it in his gospel. And this is why it is so vital that the church today attend to the apostolic teaching. Because the Spirit of truth had a mission to those first apostles to lead them into all the truth. And then Jesus addresses the sorrow that has come upon the disciples. And he uses a very common occurrence to illustrate what is about to happen with them. He speaks of a woman in labor and how her distress is momentary, but how her joy is long-lasting, displacing the distress altogether. And while the disciples are in sorrow now, joy is just around the corner. They're not thinking of what they cannot properly conceive. It's not that they have not witnessed a resurrection. It was not that many weeks ago that they saw Lazarus emerge from the tomb. But that thought is now long gone. It has not seemingly occurred to them that Jesus will be killed and then be be raised because he's speaking of going to where the Father is and that has overwhelmed them. Jesus knows that they will soon weep and lament 
but that sorrow will be displaced by a joy that no one will be able to take away because it will always be true for them that Jesus conquered death in the grave, paving the way for them to be with him and with the Father. Regardless of what happens to them in terms of trial and tribulation, they will always know that Jesus has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father reigning. They will always know that he is Lord over all, and they will trust themselves to him forever. And so when their joy arrives on Easter morn and over the following 40 days that Jesus will have with them, he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The Gospel writer Luke tells us that during this period of time, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Now, we do not have a great deal of recorded teaching that Jesus shared in those days, but we must believe that if Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets to explain to the two other disciples on the road to Emmaus why the Christ had to suffer and die, then he certainly would have engaged in similar discourse with the eleven in order to cover what he refers to here as, I still have many things to say to you. Whatever that entailed, the disciples themselves revealed these things in their own letters and gospels and activities recorded in the New Testament, all of which are a benefit to us of this spirit of truth freely given as our advocate in this world. As Jesus said to the disciples, so he says to us, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us take comfort in this eternal truth as well. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray together this morning.